go to the movies. All of life's riddles are answered in the movies. Watch a few movies, take a few notes. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> Welcome to Movie Night with Will and Noah. Thank you for being here. I am Noah, and I'm happy to have you here today. We're going to be talking all about the 2019 Academy Awards, and I can't wait to do it. Uh, but first, I have to introduce my co-host, Will Ivanovich. Will, it's been a few weeks since we've been together. What have you been up to? Um, atoning, mainly, Noah. I've been atoning for some... Uh intemperate and uh, offensive things that I said on the last podcast, which proved to be more offensive as time went on. Uh, as part of our discussion of January movies a few weeks ago, I really went out there to celebrate the, uh, the last decade's canon of Liam Neeson old man action films. And uh, in light of his racially charged comments that he gave without hesitation in a recent interview, uh, I feel very, very sorry. Uh, to have celebrated him so. Though, I mean, in a sense, I was really was more right than I knew. It truly was Liam's decade, going from the debut of Taken in January 2009 to last week when uh, he decided to blow up his career. Though, who knows? Um, a, a lot of people have been making horribly uh, racially insensitive comments, statements, revealing all things about them. So, uh, Perhaps for Liam, he's lucky that uh, more bad news will fill up our uh, Twitter and Facebook and uh, cable news discussions so that, uh, you know, his uh, deranged fantasies of uh, exacting some type of racial revenge uh, will be forgotten. His comments were, were pretty bad, and your defense of him has certainly aged poorly. My uh, problems with him have aged well, so uh, I'm always happy to revisit this discussion. I, w I will say, though, I'm not, I'm not convinced his career is done. Some people have defended him and said, you know, he didn't enact any racial violence, and he's admitting it in, like, a, uh, an effort to, you know, be honest uh, about his darker impulses, something people don't do very often and is sometimes commendable. And even people like Trevor Noah of The Daily Show were sort of not applauding him, but at least offering some gray area. So I don't know that his career is over. And in a weird coincidence, like two days before this broke, I found myself watching The Commuter on Amazon Prime the other day. Have you seen The Commuter? I have not. It's not good. It's a movie where he plays a guy who is blackmailed sort of into finding like a witness Mm -hmm. uh, to a crime on a Metro North train and he has to like find that person and kill them or they're going to kill his family. And if he does it, he gets like a hundred thousand dollars or something. Mm. And my biggest problem with the movie is how it plays fast and loose with the Metro North route. Somehow this train stops at 79th street and 86th street and then goes on to cold spring. Like it didn't make any sense, which would be great by the way. Uh, but that option's not been made available to us Metro North uh, commuters. Yeah, and like this is a problem that only we in our corner of the world are going to have with the movie. Um, but you know, I actually it's a very ridiculous movie. But I, you know, he, his these movies have their charms, and I didn't totally hate it. So I think his career 
of making movies for a certain, you know, right wingish older uh, white audience. I don't see why that has to end because he still got them. Well, this, you know, this, this incident brings to mind something that I've sadly long suspected. You know, politicians and thought leaders and artists and entertainers have long been calling for a quote unquote national conversation on race. And mm. I'm sorry to tell you, folks, but I think we're actually having it. I think this is actually the national conversation on race, sad as it is. It's old white guys fantasizing about, fantasizing about like racist killing sprees, elected officials of both parties uh, admitting or confessing that they wore blackface. Um, and then like for Hollywood's part, and this gets into the Oscars, you know, after years of snubbing and underrepresenting black actors and filmmakers in the award season, this year, they sort of try to make up for it by picking a number of films in the best picture category, which explores racial issues related, you know, particularly to African-Americans, but kind of in the shallowest way possible, while they actually snubbed movies that sort of go deeper into it, like If Beale Street Could Talk, and then, ironically, Widows, a movie which uh, at least features, if not stars, Mr. Liam Neeson. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And Widows has some interesting things to say about race in America, I think. And I agree with your point, but I actually think the three movies that are nominated for Best Picture and have racial themes, I don't think they're all shallow. I think I think there's a real diversity of perspective. We're talking, of course, about Black Panther, Green Book, and Black Klansmen, which are all very different movies made by very different filmmakers that sort of appeal to very different audiences. And maybe progress means uh, diversity of, or a variety of racial uh, perspectives. And I think that conversation that you're talking about is playing out this year at the Oscars, for sure. Or maybe the progress is that after years of putting lousy films made by white film directors in the best picture category, black filmmakers who've made lousy films have finally arrived <laughs> so that their films can now be included in the best picture category. You think Black Klansman's a lousy film? Uh, I watched about 30 minutes of it. I just couldn't, uh, I, I have not enjoyed a Spike Lee film probably since, uh, Inside Man. That's a fair perspective, but I, uh, to me, Black Klansman does, does not fall into the category of some of his worst work. And, uh, you know, maybe you should have given it a little longer than 30 minutes. But then again, this is what professional film critics like myself have to do. We're not allowed to, to end a movie after 30 minutes. And, and you have that right. You have that freedom. And I'm not going to take it away from you. Thank you. So let's talk a little bit about the Oscars. We're going to get into this year's Oscars in a little bit, but I thought it might be fun, first of all, uh, like many people, when the Oscars are coming up, I'm thinking about Oscars of years past. Do you have a favorite uh, Oscar memory that you'd like to share? I do have a favorite Oscar memory, and though it's not like one particular moment, like say, you know, Roberto Benigni, you know, leaping across rows of seats as he went up to the main stage to accept an Academy Award or, you know, Jack Pound. I said, I said favorite, not least favorite. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah, was a horrible moment. It was. It, it ages poorly over time, considering the film <laughs> he was accepting the award for. Um, yeah. So my favorite Oscar memory is actually an entire Academy Award itself. This would be the 64th Academy Awards, 1992, uh, a award ceremony that featured Silence of the Lambs, Bugsy, Cape Fear, Europa Europa, The Prince of Tides, Beauty and the Beast, and actually, um, I think probably the weakest movie in the Best Picture category, category that year, as I see it at least, was JFK. I mean, this was a 
blockbuster Academy Award season um, of just terrific movies coming at a point in my life when I was really starting to get into movies. And as a special treat, I, mean, I was 12 years old at the time, we were living on the East Coast, so the Oscars, of course, started later. My mom let me stay up the entire night to watch the entire award show. And I had seen Silence of the Lambs in theaters. I'd seen Bugsy. I'd seen so many of those movies in theaters, and I was so excited about all of them. And it also made me especially happy because while I both liked Bugsy, which won the most amount of, or at least got the highest number of nominations, it, it gave me a certain amount of optimism and joy to see Silence of the Lambs really go head to head against it and take so many awards because Bugsy was kind of the conventional establishment film made by Barry Levinson, big stars, big production, sort of the movie that nobody was really going to have too much of a problem with against Silence of the Lambs, which was disturbing, um, didn't have a big name director at that point, a smaller movie in terms of budget, but it had so, such a much lasting impact in the minds of moviegoers and film critics in the years to come. That's a great pick because I had forgotten that that was the dynamic going into those Oscars. I don't think I was allowed to see Bugsy uh, at that age, but I, I do think I'd seen Silence of the Lambs. And you're right, Jonathan Demme was like a genre movie director. He, he made a lot of B-movies. He was kind of known for that. And then he was starting to go mainstream at this point and, and get bigger, uh, you know, bigger box off, uh, bigger budgets and, and, and bigger stars. But I'm sure it was very much the underdog, certainly going into that year. And that movie swept the awards in large part. I don't think Bugsy won any of the major awards. And Silence of the Lambs won Best Director, Best uh, Picture, Best Actor, and Best Actress. And that really doesn't happen very much anymore. That and Million Dollar Baby are like two of the only ones I can recall in the last 25 years that kind of had anything resembling a sweep. So, uh, yeah, that's a cool year. Well, other good movies that year. I'm just looking it up. Uh, Fisher King was up for yep. some stuff that year. And Thelma and Louise. Yes. And City Slicker. Of course. Uh, well, then, that's, yes. Mr. Jack Palance. That, that was the one win I was somewhat opposed to, was Jack Palance winning Best Supporting Actor for City Slickers. I don't, over time, I, I think there were probably some better performances, like, you know, Nick Nolte and Cape Fear, for example. Or, uh, that's a great movie, Cape Fear. Better than City Slickers. Although City Slickers is, is, I don't want to get on a tangent here, but it's actually a really good movie. And, I, you know, they don't really make uh, a lot of movies like that anymore about, like, adults. Uh, it's a comedy, but it has a lot of poignant stuff in it as well. And it's really about, like, adults that, uh, issues that adults deal with. I saw it again a few years ago, and I was kind of surprised by how well it worked. No reaction from you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you said uh, it all, my, my Oscar moment, I'm going to, I'm going to, pick uh, a host because you know hosts are in the news these days uh, these oscars don't have a host we don't know if that's going to be successful or not and yeah, i want to talk that happen oh that's that's a subject <laughs> for another podcast i thought we were having a national <laughs> conversation on race forgive me no we're not uh it's i'll say it's a shame what happened because kevin hart would have been a great host in so many ways for for these particular oscars but uh i will also say that hugh jackman is my favorite host of all time. And I don't see why he's not the host every year. His opening number in 2009 is my favorite opening number that any Oscars have ever had. I don't remember how well it was received, but it's really, really brilliant. It's, you can watch it, it's on YouTube. The idea behind the opening number is that the producers had canceled the opening number as a nod to the recession. 
And there actually was a lot of hand wringing over this prior to the show. People were saying that a glitzy awards show was like disrespectful to people who were suffering under the recession. So Jackman did what he called like a low rent opening number with props that he claimed to have stayed up late making in his garage, things made out of pizza boxes and tin foil. And it was a clever idea, but the whole thing was really just a showcase for his talents. He sings incredibly well in this number, uh, far better than he did in Les Miserables, by the way. He dances incredibly well. He doesn't take it too seriously. He breaks several times. He giggles at how ridiculous everything he's doing is. And there are two, two great moments in it that I just want to call out. So he kind of goes through all of the big movies of the year and does little songs about them the way Billy Crystal used to. I love the moment when he pulls Anne Hathaway out of the audience to do Frost Nixon with him, with Anne Hathaway playing Nixon. Why didn't you burn the tapes? <laughs> I don't know what I'm supposed to say here. 18 minutes, all erased. I mean, it's an honor. I just would have loved a heads up. America deserves an apology. Frank Langello was sitting right next to me. She's really good in this sequence, and I can see why the Academy uh, invited her back to host the following year. Obviously, it didn't work out as well. But my I blame Franco, you know, I, I find her blameless uh, in large part. Yeah, I think the whole thing was ill-conceived, but agreed that she was not the prime offender there. Um, but my favorite moment is there's this sort of 80s modern new wave dance number he does to the reader. And the refrain is, <laughs> I haven't seen the reader. I was going to see it, but I fell behind. The reader. I haven't seen the reader. I was going to see it later, but I fell behind. My Batmobile took longer than I thought to design. The reader. I know I need to see the reader. And uh, it's just so funny that he would admit that and to take the piss out of a Holocaust movie. I mean, that's just, that's high <laughs> art as far as I'm concerned. So difficult to pull off. Very difficult to pull off. Yeah, he's like the only guy who could pull it off is really what I'm saying because he's so charming and, and talented. So he's the anti-Roberto Benigni. <laughs> what are you, his agent? That's fantastic. <laughs> I came up with that. Uh, all right, well, let's move on to this year's Oscars. And uh, do you want to lay out how we're going to do this, Will? We're going to lay it out uh, roughly in the way that they usually present these awards. So we've picked out of the many categories, six categories, Best Supporting Actress, Best Supporting Actor, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Director, and finally Best Picture. Are we going to do a musical number? Would you like me to? If you would like to mention a musical number, you are allowed one... Uh, wild card or honorable mention or special feature of a different award besides those categories that I've mentioned. Uh, so you can talk about any award you like, though the format for the six awards that we're pre presenting will be which movie or performer or director will win and which should win. Okay. Just so you know, well, I did not prepare which should win, but I'm, I'm happy to do that. I'm sure you've thought a long time about these movies now. I have. Oh, you were paid for this after all. Can I make one other plug while we're here? Uh, if you happen to be in the D.C. area, I am giving a talk uh, on the Oscars at the Smithsonian on February 21st. Uh, I do this every year, and it's a lot of fun. You can find tickets for it at smithsonianassociates.com. But it's Thursday, February 21st, and there are still some tickets available. So if you or someone you love is in D.C., uh, this would be a great thing to do with your evening. 
Well, hopefully the government will still be open at that point so that you can take the stage. I'm taking the stage one way or the other. <laughs> I don't let the government tell me what to do. You will not be silenced. I understand. <laughs> All right. What, so we're going to do a supporting actress first. Is that the idea? Best supporting actress first. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll go first if you don't mind. To me, this is really a two-woman race. It's between Regina King for If Beale Street Could Talk and Amy Adams for Vice. Uh, Marina de Tavira, to me, is in the just happy to be here category. She was probably the biggest surprise nomination among any of, of the, the acting categories. Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz, I think we're both fantastic in the favorite, but they will cancel each other out. And when I look at Adams and King, I personally think King's performance is a lot better, and I think she's going to win as well. To me, Amy Adams screams... I'm going to get nominated a lot of times before I finally get the win I deserve. She's just one of those actors who is always so good, but her performances are never very showy. And so she never kind of has that one role that everybody sees and like, oh, that's it. That's her Oscar. And I didn't think that much of Vice. We've talked about it a couple of times on the podcast. I, I did think she was good in it, but to me, Regina King gives a much better, uh, more complete performance and when i think of if beale street could talk which is a beautiful movie her face and her performance is the thing that i remember first so i think she'll win and i think it'll be a great moment because she's one of those actors who's been around forever and never quite gotten her due uh, and i would say she is my will win and should win so i'm gonna partially agree with you in that uh i think that regina king should win and I've only seen clips of Bill Street talk, but I still think that Regina King should win. I've been a fan of hers for a long time, ever since uh, Jerry Maguire. Yeah. But I actually think that Marina de Tavira is going to win. And for no other reason, but I fear that Roma is going to be snubbed in several other categories. And that mm. they're likely going to sort of get a consolation prize of having some of the on-screen talent rewarded with votes. So I think that for no other reason, but I think she gets a gimme, you know, having seen a number of uh, Academy Awards over the years, occasionally they do this. They, they give the award to somebody who's not a name, or at least is not a name domestically. Um, thinking of, of course, uh, was the actress, uh, didn't the, the young lady who, uh, from New Zealand who starred in Whale Rider, didn't she? Keisha Castle Hughes. She did not win, but she was a surprise nomination. But but what you're right about is that supporting actress in particular is historically a category where there are surprises. Speaking of Jack Palance, Marissa Tomei was quite a surprise. Mira Sorvino yes. was a surprise. And there have been many others. Uh, Tilda Swinton for Michael Clayton, that was a big surprise. Mm -hmm. So this, this is a category where there are sometimes some surprises. Regina King, surprisingly, was not nominated for the SAG Award, and actors make up the biggest branch of, of the voting academy, so that could be a hint that something unusual will happen. So I like the way you think. I, I still wouldn't put my money on it, but it's an interesting choice. All right. Uh, let's talk supporting actor. Supporting actor. Uh, you know, I know we said beforehand that we were going to try to pick unusual choices because, honestly, at this point, uh, with so many precursor awards and so much groupthink going on, uh, it seems a lot of these awards are sort of predetermined. And Mahershala Ali is is the obvious choice here. And I'm I'm going to pick him for for will win. I'm not going to pick him for should win. I'll talk about that in a minute. But he's going to win in part because he's a great actor and he, he gives a great performance. But there's two other factors that go into this. Number one, Green Book is a much maligned film. 
And a lot of people have problems with it. A lot of issues have been raised with its authenticity, with kind of the nuances of its racial perspective, but nobody's holding him responsible for it. And there seems to be an attitude of, it really sucks for Mahershala Ali that he has to represent this movie when he's not the problem with it. So I think that kind of goodwill will help him a little bit. I also see a little bit of a McConaughey effect going on here, and I'll tell you what I mean. In 2014, Matthew McConaughey won the Oscar for Dallas Buyers Club, but it felt to me at the time like he was partially getting rewarded for his work in True Detective, which was on Mm -hmm. HBO while the voting was going on. Uh And lo and behold, Mahershala Ali is also in the new season of True Detective right now while the voting is going on and getting great notices for it. So I think that's going to serve him well. I think he will win. My pick would be Richard E. Grant for Who Should Win and Can You Ever Forgive Me. He's a brilliant actor. He's been around forever. He's great at playing drunks. He was in With Nail and I uh, as a person with substance abuse problems. And in Can You Ever Forgive Me, he's also an alcoholic. He's charming in the movie. He's a great roguish character. But I found out recently that he's never had a drop of alcohol in his whole life, that he has a a disease or a, a condition in which he can't drink alcohol. And that makes his performance even more amazing. So he would get my vote. Well, to your point about Marshall Ali, uh, I've watched every episode of this season of True Detective, and I cannot recommend it more highly. It's actually, I think, in a lot of ways more enjoyable than the first season of True Detective, which, of course, starred Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey. It's uh, very rewarding to watch uh, Marshall Ali. It's really, I mean, he did a lot of TV work before he became the star that he is now. And uh he is uh, great on the small screen as well as the big screen. So he's, he's your will win? No, actually, he's not. For my best supporting actor, uh, the stars have aligned, have, uh, as of both my picks, I'm going with Mr. Sam Elliott in both the will win and should win category. Um, mm. Should win just because I, I thought he was really the best part of A Star is Born. Um, Agreed. The movie was certainly had some weaknesses and problems to it, but he was just, uh, he enriched every part about it every time he was on screen, though uh, not enough for my tastes. And in the will win category, it's just because he's been in Hollywood for like 50 years and has never received so much as an Academy Award nomination before. He's received, you know, other awards, you know, lesser awards, nominated for a few things, but he's never been nominated for anything. And This will almost be kind of like a Lifetime Achievement Award for somebody whose career, frankly, doesn't ever merit a Lifetime Achievement Award by the Academy. Well, he's one of those guys that everybody likes. Like, you're always happy to see him on screen. So I don't know if he's a Hollywood insider, the kind of guy everybody knows and enjoys off screen, but you just love to to watch him act. And I I see where you're coming from with this pick. It's, It's an interesting choice. All right, uh, what are we doing now? Best actor. Well, the smart money is on Rami Malek, but I'm, I'm thinking it's going to be Christian Bale. I think the, the backlash to Bohemian Rhapsody is going to finally catch up to Rami Malek. He's sort of coasted through award season. He won the Golden Globe for Best Drama, although Christian Bale won it for Best Actor in a Comedy, and he won the SAG Award. But Bohemian Rhapsody has just got too much baggage attached to it right now. And I know people love that movie. I don't quite understand why. I thought it was okay. The only way I could actually enjoy it was to see it as some sort of postmodern, uh, grotesque sort of reimagining uh, of, of, of the band's career. And I wrote about that in the Rye Record. 
but uh, I just think there's too much, too much uh, bad stuff associated with that movie right now. And Christian Bale is an actor that deserves two best actor Oscars. He's probably the best actor working today in film. And this would be a great opportunity for them to award him and the movie, which we know that they like. So he gets my choice for will win. And I don't really have a should win because to be honest with you, I didn't love any of these performances. I'm not a fan of Bradley Cooper's, as you know, haven't seen Willem Dafoe in At Eternity's Gate. And I liked Green Book better than most, but I didn't think Vigo was best actor worthy. So I'm going to have to abstain. Well, I, you know, you've uh, made me regret putting in all my chips on Rami Malek to win. But, you know, once the bet is placed, the bet is made. So I, I do say Rami Malek for a couple of reasons. Uh, yes, there is baggage and probably eventual backlash related to uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. However, the film was incredibly successful. I mean, really, box office worldwide, it's made a ton of money. Um, Rami Malek, uh, just from the clips that I've seen, does a very, very uh, amazing reenactment of Freddie Mercury. Kind of, by the way, difficult to do, considering he's such a small guy. And Freddie Mercury was actually a big dude. Um, it yeah. was not, you know, he was incredibly talented, but it was also somewhat easier for him to command a space because he was a giant guy compared to Rami Malek, who's just absolutely tiny. But it's, it's like when you see stage performances of actors who are incredibly talented, but physically diminutive, and you don't realize how small they are until maybe you see them afterwards or someone mentions what their height is. But when you see them on stage, you're like, Hey, that guy was six feet tall. That guy was, you know, 180 pounds. And now you're telling me he's, you know, five, four and a buck 30. So there is something about an actor who can really keep stage presence going. And that's why I think also uh, in a year that heavily focuses on uh, the plight or issues of African-Americans in a lot of film titles, there has to be something else to give as a peon to the gods of intersectionality. So that's kind of why I think Rami Malek, uh, he is their avatar for that. Because he's, uh, what nationality is he? Well, no, I say intersectionality, my friend, meaning uh, the confluence of various aggrieved minority groups. And so oh, you're uh, talking about uh, the queer aspect of it. I, well, that would be your word, not mine, sir. No, that's an okay word. I've asked a lot of people. You know, I'm uh, I'm so out the game for too long. I don't understand what terms are okay or not okay anymore. Well, you can take my word for it. Um, <laughs> I use I use that word on the BBC this week, so I think I can use it here. It's good enough um, for the Beeb. It's good enough for me. <laughs> All right, my my should win pick, uh, and you're not going to like this one. It is Mr. Bradley Cooper. Uh, Get out of here with that. <laughs> here, here's my Bradley Cooper impression. There we go. Well, an Oscar. Fortunately, it wasn't a radio program, uh, <laughs> but rather a motion picture that Mr. Cooper not only acted in, but directed himself to act in. Uh, so, you guys, I think you get some points for that. Uh, B, you know, he got to do a range of things. And oftentimes, you know, it's sort of as a parallel, obviously, to Rami Malik. You get to see him perform as well as share intimate moments of the character. And I also, I just find him so damn appealing on screen. Uh, he, he gets my vote. I'm sorry. He does. You know what? All of your picks make a lot of sense, in all honesty. I could see him getting an award here because, you know, A Star is Born has fallen so far out of contention in like every other category. He was not nominated for director, which was a big surprise. 
And it reminds me a little bit of when Argo didn't get Ben Affleck a Best Director nomination, so they gave him Best Picture instead. Mm. I could kind of see something like this happening here if, if Bale and Malick somehow split the vote, that he could, he could sneak in. So you're making a lot of sense to me. All right, Best Actress now, sir. Well, Best Actress, it pains me to say so because it's a boring choice, but it's going to be Glenn Close in The Wife. Mm. You know, she's, she's won all the precursors. This is a movie almost nobody has seen. I've seen it. She's very good in it. It's not her best performance of her career by a long shot. But this is what the Academy does. They make up for years of slights and snubs by giving somebody an award for a movie that they don't deserve it for. But it's a career achievement award. And that's what's going to happen here. Glenn Close has endeared herself to everyone on the campaign troll. Probably three quarters of the actor's branch have worked with her at some point. She's known to be a delight to work with. And I think everybody just loves seeing her out there getting these awards. And it would just be a real shock to me. This one that seems to fall right in line with how the Academy approaches these things. So she's the will win. The should win is Olivia Coleman in The Favorite. This is my favorite movie of the eight that are nominated for Best Picture. And it's not expected to get any major awards, maybe screenplay. This is one that it should get because she is a dominating force at the center of this movie. She's funny, she's tragic, and she totally commands the screen, taking it, uh, taking attention away from Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz, which is not easy to do. Uh, those were actually my picks in those categories. Uh, hey, look at that. You know, I've followed Olivia Coleman's career for a long time. She's been in a fair amount of TV shows that I've liked. Uh, yeah, it's one of these things where if we were in Britain, she would kind of get the Glenn Close treatment. But this, mm-hmm. uh, this is not the British Academy Awards. And so she will get snubbed in favor of Glenn Close, I think. Um, you know, maybe honorable mention to uh, Alicia Aparicio, whose name I hope I, I got correct. Um, mm-hmm. But um, maybe that there's an outside chance. That would sort of be my, my second who will win, uh, second runner-up in that category. So there's, I think there still is an outside chance that she ends up taking home the Oscar. But yeah, I think uh, Glenn Close is the odds-on favorite. Okay, what's next? Uh, best director. I'm going with Spike Lee. Mm. I know Alfonso Cuaron is the front runner right now, but it just feels like I can feel it in the air that the momentum is building for Spike Lee to get an award he should have won a couple times over earlier in his career. Everyone's reminded this year of 1989 when Do the Right Thing was not nominated for Best Picture or Best Director. He had to settle for a screenplay nomination. He didn't win. Driving Miss Daisy won Best Picture. And with Green Book up and Black Klansman up, it just feels like this is happening all over again. Mm -hmm. But the membership of the Academy is very different this year. You know, there's been a lot of efforts to make it more diverse, as we talked about. And they clearly uh, care about this movie. They clearly like this movie. And it's similar to the Glenn Close situation. It's not his best work by a long shot, but it might be his best chance to win an Oscar. And I think they're going to make it happen for him. So I would give him will win and should win. I would probably pick Yorgos Lanthimos for the favorite because it is my favorite of those movies that are nominated. He's a fascinating director. He makes really deadpan, cruel comedies, I would say. And this is his best work because he really allows his actors to uh, flourish and put some real emotion into their line readings, which is a new thing for him. And it, it brings the favorite a lot of uh, a lot of depth and richness, and it's also just hilariously funny. 
in a wicked way. So he would be my choice there. All right. Um, interesting choices. But to your point about uh, Alfonso Cuaron being the front runner, well, there's a reason for that because he's going to win. <laughs> he's taking it. He's getting the whole thing. Uh, I think it's, it's a foregone conclusion. I think also there is. It's not a foregone conclusion. <laughs> Well, if it were a foregone conclusion, we wouldn't be talking about it right now. <laughs> well, you know the best part about it being a foregone conclusion is voting hasn't actually even started yet. <laughs> they don't start voting on this stuff until February 12th, which I think is this Tuesday. Yep. Externalities oftentimes weigh in on the decision that all of these Academy members do have. And, uh, you know, with the slew of, uh, uh, you know, politicians uh, of both parties revealing that they're wearing blackface of uh, Mr. Liam Neeson's confession. I, there's been a fair amount of uh, unforced racist errors going on. I got to imagine there's going to be a few more. We just, uh, we just can't stop. And so, you know, that, that behavior could inspire the Academy to want to use some of its votes to rebuke what is clearly an ongoing problem in this country. So uh, maybe you're right about Spike. Yeah, that sounded like an argument for Spike more than, than for Coron. It is. You know, well, it's like, uh, remember how Hillary Clinton argued that if uh, the presidential election of 2016 were held the day before James Comey's second letter came out, she'd be president? Yeah. I guess, I guess I'm making the Hillary argument that, you know, if the voting <laughs> were done this week, uh, Coron, right. I mean, he'd be buying Oscar polish as we speak, but maybe you're correct. Well, I, I think you're making a good point, which is that Roma and Black Klansmen uh, both speak to issues that are very important to the liberal academy. It kind of is a question of which issue is the issue du jour when they are voting. I, I do think they use film and the Oscars to make political statements. And why shouldn't mm -hmm. they? Uh, so sure. we'll see. We'll see which one they care about more. Maybe he's hoping for like an incident is like, you know, the southern border to sort of, you know, remind voters of that particular issue. You know, one one doesn't want to uh, suspect such poor motives. But right now it's a very, very tense race. You know what he's saying? Build that wall. That. <laughs> Build that wall. <laughs> right, so my should win is for uh, and I hope I don't get this name wrong. Powell Pawlikowski for you got you got it quite wrong. <laughs> it's, uh, it's Pavel. Uh, the W is pronounced as a V. You know, as a man myself who is one-eighth Polish, I can't believe that I got that pronunciation wrong. <laughs> I'm sure they'll forgive you. To be clear, my one-eighth Polishness is verified. All right, do, do you want to say something about Cold War? Yeah, I watched uh, Cold War a couple days ago when it came available, I think, on Amazon, and uh, I really enjoyed it. That's, that's basically my <laughs> only... It's not getting nominations in a lot of other categories, and so to show my support for the film, I have great interest in uh, Eastern European peoples and the Cold War itself uh, and the dynamics of, uh, of communism on a people. Uh, I just I want to support Powell. Pavel, yeah, whatever, Pavel. whatever his name is. Yeah. Pavel. Yep. Uh, I think it's a great movie too. So I like your choice. All right. Our final category, Noah. Well, wall or no wall, I think Roma's going to win Best Picture. Uh, it's a really interesting choice in a lot of ways because it's not a movie that is going to appeal to the largest segment of the population. It's a black and white movie, it's a, a foreign language film. It's shot in this sort of widescreen uh, angle that, you know, you really have to be paying attention to see what's going on. 
and it's it's a slow build as well it's not there's no immediate gratification but it's a beautiful movie and it is it's beautifully made Quaron is a true master of the form and he recreated this era in Mexico City and I think the political statement will win out. It doesn't mean just because they're going to give Spike Lee the award for best director doesn't mean they can't also promote this issue with Roma. The only thing that can hold it back is that it is a Netflix movie. And there's a lot of anxiety in the movie industry about what it means to award their highest honor to a film that most people saw sitting on their couch. Um, regardless of the fact that most award voters see all their movies on the couch since they get screening screeners uh, at home. But there is a lot of anxiety about that, and that could be the thing that holds it back. But it just seems like all the momentum is building towards a Roma victory. We already know the Academy loves Quaron. He's already gotten a Best Picture nomination, a Best Director Oscar. This will be a, a nice, a nice way to cement his legacy. So that's my that's my will win. And as I mentioned before, the favorite is my personal favorite of the eight nominees. So that would be my should win. Well, I'm going to go with Roma should win, but uh, and we we talked before the uh, this episode about trying to come up with the most interesting choices, not the films or actors we found the most interesting, but uh, the choice of the Academy being the most interesting. And I think Black Panther is actually going to win. Mm. Uh, You know, I think that there is particularly now since uh, voting begins in a couple of days if there were ever an opportunity to make a political statement against uh, the kind of obviously racism that we've dwelled on a fair bit in this episode, um, I actually think picking black Panther is an interesting choice also because having seen that um, having, you know, actually not actually seen if Beale street could talk, which wasn't nominated of course, but I didn't see black Klansman. Um, I didn't see green book. But I think they play, pick Black Panther just as a sort of massive troll on half of America that's not necessarily down with the politics of the Academy. Because mm-hmm. if they were to make that best picture, really half of America would pull, it, pull its hair out. A lot of it because, hey, it's not a very good movie, but B, just on the assumption that they're, they would be called racist for not liking this movie or objecting to its winning the Academy Award. I think it's an interesting argument, and I, I, I wouldn't rule it out. It did win the SAG Award for Best Ensemble, which is a decent uh, Best Picture precursor. But, but Black Panther movie, the movie was beloved by more than just liberals. I mean, it made $1.3 billion worldwide. And I think people of all political persuasions went to this movie and enjoyed it, right? I mean, I, I went to it. Uh, I didn't enjoy it. But again, as I said, you know, I thought it was on, on par with uh, the latest Avengers movie, which actually mm. featured much of the cast of Black Panther in that movie. It was yeah. just to me, it was a big budget Marvel movie uh, at a point in my viewing experience when I've about had my fill of big budget Marvel movies. I have as well. And I agree that it's not as wonderful as everyone else seems to think it is. But I do think it's engaging with some interesting ideas or it's trying to, at least. I'm not sure it's always doing that, honestly. There's a really good argument out there that the movie should uh, kind of be more persuaded by the villain's philosophy than the hero's philosophy. And uh, some of it just doesn't add up. Uh, But it was a huge movie. And it's the first comic book movie to be nominated for Best Picture. And if the Academy wants to say, hey, 
we're super relevant still, even though our ratings are going down, which is something we know that they're anxious about. Uh, giving their highest honor to Black Panther would be a good way to kind of uh, make themselves seen to people who are starting to tune the Oscars out. It's also, I think, kind of ridiculous because it's nominated for Best Picture, and yet Michael B. Jordan, who I think arguably was the best part of the movie, does yeah. not get the Best Supporting Actor nod. I don't get it. The Academy's got a problem with him. I think he should have been nominated for Creed as well. Yeah. Instead, they nominated Sylvester Stallone, the white guy in that movie. So uh, he'll get his due at some point, but it may take mm. a couple couple years. All right. And now this part, since the main awards are over, uh, this is sort of like the daytime Emmys. You know, it doesn't get the uh, as much attention. Was there another award or category that you wanted to talk about? I want to talk about Best Foreign Film because I think this is the most stacked category uh, that there has been in a long time. You know, in any other year, uh, first of all, Roma's almost certainly going to win Best Foreign Film. I picked it to win Best Picture. And it would be unprecedented for a foreign film to be nominated for Best Picture and not win Best Foreign Film. But in any other year, Cold War would 100% win this award. You said it didn't get a lot of nominations. I actually think it did get a lot for a foreign film that isn't Roma. It's up for Best Director. It's up for Best Cinematography. And it's up here in Best Foreign Film. That's a lot of big nominations for a movie to not even win the foreign film category. So there's some part of me that would not be shocked if Roma won Best Picture and Cold War won Best Foreign Film. I might go out on a limb and predict that just to be the contrary. But it wouldn't be sh- I wouldn't be shocked if that happened. But there's other movies here that are great. Shoplifters in any other year would probably win Best Foreign Film. Directed by Hirokazu Koreeda, Japanese master. He's been making great films for 25 years, and this is his first nomination. It's a beautiful movie. It was in my top 10 of the year. Uh, But this category typically has an anti-Asian bias. This is the first Asian film to be nominated since, I think, 2009. And there was another Asian film this year called Burning, a uh, South Korean film that was even better and somehow got left off the list, should be in the category, should win the category in any other year. And then there's also Capernaum, a uh, very good movie, a kind of neorealist film about a young immigrant in uh, Beirut trying to survive on the streets, a child. It's a really tough watch in some ways, but the kid is just fantastic. It's a beautiful movie. And, and then this movie, Never Look Away, which I haven't seen but somehow got a foreign film nomination and a cinematography nomination, I think. Which, again, if you see any of these movies get nominated in the other big categories, that's usually a sign they've got a good chance to win. So we've got that happening all over this category this year, which just speaks to how strong it really is. And I encourage everyone to see these movies if they can. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you've... Uh... It's, it's sometimes it's an overlooked category because there's just there's never enough interest in foreign films. Uh, I think it's terrific that uh, several foreign films have sort of broken through to the other side. But um, and, a, and a lot of times there's just one movie that's obviously going to win because it's the only one people have heard of. Uh, but this year is different because the Academy, you know, they made efforts to, as we talked about, diversify, but also to bring in more international members. And I think we're seeing the fruits of that effort right here. So my award um, is, is one where the uh, conclusion is already foregone, and this would be the uh, Irving Thalberg Award, which this year is being presented to the producer duo, uh, both partners and spouses, Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall. 
I have a lot of problems with this award because of the time now in which it's being presented to them. If this had come out, say, five years ago, I would have completely supported it. I mean, these are the two behind Lincoln, uh, E.T., The Land Before Time, one of my particular favorites, uh, and just a host of incredible movies, many of which done in obviously collaboration with director Steven Spielberg over the last 40 years. I mean, the two of them have had a, a terrific career together. Uh, going back, I believe, to the early 80s. But uh, in light of the slew of really underwhelming Star Wars films in this expanded universe since Disney purchased the Star Wars franchise a few years ago, Kathleen Kennedy, who has been in charge and has had uh, sort of a difficult time running it, I almost feel like this award is a way of the Hollywood establishment pushing back against the millions of angry nerdish star wars fans who just uh you know think this whole thing is turning into a crap show i mean it's almost the dynamic of say you know the rebels meaning guys who like uh star wars versus the empire hollywood that is standing firmly behind kathleen kennedy and saying uh no she will continue she's doing a great job no matter what you say and more importantly no matter what the ever weakening box office numbers say so i think this award comes to kathleen kennedy either, you know, five years uh, too late or perhaps five years too early if she manages to turn this franchise around. That's very interesting because this comes not just after like Rogue One, which a lot of fans had a problem with, but after Solo, which this wasn't just a movie that fans had a problem with. It had a a famously uh, troubled behind the scenes story in which the directors were fired. They had to bring in Ron Howard. And then it was not received very well by critics and fans. So this comes at a moment when the franchise is really sort of in jeopardy. And I think they've actually maybe canceled or postponed some of the films that they were planning. So uh, you've put your finger on it. There's something really bizarre and really sort of pointed about giving her this award at this moment. It's kind of like The Empire Strikes Back. Keep going. Let's see how far you can. You know what I would tell Kathleen Kennedy? I would say the tighter your grip on the Star Wars franchise, the more fans will slip through your fingers. That's a good one. I got. got, That's it. I got no more. I got no more. (laughs) Hey, she also produced Cape Fear, by the way. Oh, you know, this is what I'm saying. Uh, You know, all uh, all great careers end in homicide. Um, (laughs) They they tend not to die of old age. It sort of reminds me of. uh, I think it was the 1960 or 61 Academy Awards when Billy Wilder accepted uh, the Oscar for Best Director, I think for either The Apartment or Some Like It Hot. And the presenter who was friends with him whispered in his ear as he claimed the statue. And she, she whispered, Billy, it's time to stop. And um, she was actually right. Uh, the Apartment and Some Like It Hot were sort of the end of a great 15-year career that would be followed by a progressively worse uh, 15-year downslope for Billy Wilder. She whispered that in his ear while he was receiving the award? Yes, she did. Billy Wilder confirmed it. That's a dick move. I'm sorry. She was right. Let him enjoy the evening before you tell him that, at least. It has a kind of, uh, you know, all glorious, fleeting, remember, sire, thou art mortal thing that they allude to at the end of Patton. Okay. Well, I'm glad he didn't go kill himself that night or something. (laughs) Uh, All right. Well, that wraps it up. Uh, We'll check in after the Oscars and we'll see if we were right or wrong or or somewhere in between. Uh, But we're going to do an episode before that. We don't know what we're going to talk about yet, right, Will? Hopefully not a continuation of this national conversation about race. (laughs) 
we'll try to mix it up. We'll, we'll, we'll have something a little less heavy for, for our listeners. Uh, but I look forward to it. And until next time, we'll see you at the movies. Why is your upper lip so sweaty? Is it? Yes, but I like it. Mr. Frost, I think I love you. Oh, Nixon. (laughs) You know I love you, too. Anne Hathaway, thank you, Anne. (laughs) 